0: The history of racial violence in this country is long and ugly, and the trauma is ever-present for many people. But can art help us reckon with that history?
1: We could take it slowly,
0: or we could get insane. No one ever got anywhere by playing it safe. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we'll wrestle with the current exhibitions at the Faulkner Gallery here on campus. First we'll talk about Reckoning with the Incident, John Wilson's studies for a lynching mural. And then we'll turn to the other exhibit on display, Dread and Delight, Fairy Tales in an Anxious World, which is curated by Emily Stamey, a 2001 Grinnell grad. Also, we've got a short story on the wonderful Grinnell tradition of alumni care packages. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. In 1952, John Wilson, an American artist, went to Mexico and painted a powerful and haunting mural titled The Incident. It depicts the scene of a racial terror lynching at the hands of the Ku Klux Klan, while a young African-American family looks on. The mural is long gone, but Wilson's preparatory sketches still exist in the college's art collection, and they form the basis of the exhibit now on display in the Faulkner Gallery. This exhibition comes at a time of discussion about what it means to reckon with the legacy of slavery and racial violence in this country. Before we get to the actual content of the exhibition, I want to talk a little bit about lynching. Kesho Scott, professor of sociology, as part of the programming for this exhibition, gave a presentation about the statistics of lynching. A recent report, Lynching in America, documented 4,075 lynchings of African Americans between 1877 and 1950, and many more were probably not recorded. One of the takeaways from Scott's talk was that it's impossible to tell these stories with just numbers. Coupling numbers together with stories or images is necessary in order to tell the whole story. But for someone walking right into the exhibition without an understanding of the history of lynching, these drawings might not mean as much. And so I figured that would be the case for someone listening to this as well. So as painful as it is, I think it's worth touching upon. Lynching emerged as a vicious tool of racial control in the South after the Civil War, as a way to reestablish white supremacy and suppress black civil rights. At the end of the 19th century, southern lynch mobs targeted and terrorized African Americans with impunity. Lynching of African Americans was terrorism, a widely supported phenomenon used to enforce racial subordination and segregation. Lynchings were violent and public events that traumatized black communities throughout the country and were largely tolerated by state and federal officials. They were advertised in newspapers. Postcards of lynchings were made body parts of victims were collected as relics. Nowadays, if we talk about lynching at all, whether in our schools or elsewhere, we focus on black male victims. The typical story goes something like this. White men in the South lynched black men to protect their white women from black male rapists. Even at the time, though, nobody really believed this explanation, and less than 30% of black male lynching victims were ever even accused of rape. While they were certainly the majority of the victims, the focus on black men simplifies a much more complex history and negates the many women who were lynched and often raped. These women demonstrate how lynching was deeply related to gender violence. Kesho Scott shared the stories of a few of these women, one of which shared her name, Scott. Marie Scott was just 17 years old when a white lynch mob in Oklahoma seized her from the local jail and hanged her from a nearby telephone pole. She had stabbed a man, likely in self-defense, defending herself from attempted rape at the hands of white men. Lynching was also a way to control white women's sexuality, especially those who had consensual sexual relationships with black men. It's obviously hard to talk about these things, but silence hasn't gotten us very far. Brian Stevenson, the director of the Equal Justice Initiative and founder of the New Memorial and Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, says our country, for too long, has adopted a national coping strategy of silence.
2: I think we need to create spaces in this country where we tell the story of what happened to Native people, where we tell the story of what happened to African Americans, where we tell the story of slavery, the story of lynching, the story of segregation, and at the end of it, people are motivated to say, never again, because I don't think we've ever been required to say that.
0: The Faulkner Gallery has become one of those places. While the exhibition has been on display, there have been a ton of events, talks, and discussions, and each individual visitor experiences a personal reckoning of their own when they enter the exhibit. I sat down with Leslie Wright, director of the Faulkner Gallery, to discuss how the exhibition came about and about the artist, John Wilson.
3: John Wilson was a prominent African-American artist, lived most of his life in Boston, and was a professor at Boston University in visual arts. As a young man, he trained fairly traditionally uh, as a realist painter and went to Paris and studied with Leger, who was a very significant artist at the time. There he gained some appreciation of abstraction, cubism, and the other movements that were happening.
0: And he actually came to Grinnell a while ago, in 2004, and did a retrospective on his work.
3: Kay Wilson, who is the curator of the collection, had found his work, I think we started collecting him in 2001 and developed a relationship with his gallery and then met him and felt that this was an important project to do. It was fascinating to look at his career because it really traced some of the high points of the styles of the 20th century. Um, He was a printmaker. He was a painter. He was a fantastic draftsman and drawer. Um, He was sort of the complete package.
0: So Wilson's work that's currently on display at the gallery are his studies for a lynching mural that he painted in Mexico City in 1952 while studying at La Esmeralda, Mexico's National School of Art. The mural, titled The Incident, doesn't exist anymore, but still kind of forms the centerpiece of this exhibition. What can you tell us about the mural?
3: This mural was done in Mexico City. It was a school in Mexico City that American artists and others were going to to learn to make murals. And A lot of African-American artists in particular were going to Mexico City because they could tackle topics there that were tied to race in a way that they couldn't in the early 1950s in the U.S. John had grown up hearing about the history of lynching and reading the news reports of it throughout the 20s and 30s when he was a young man. So he felt the terrorism of that time, but he'd never been able to grapple with it in his paintings. So he went to Mexico City and there decided to do this mural, uh, which is about 12 feet high by maybe 15 or 18 feet wide, on a wall outside of a building in a relatively public space. Each student was given a wall to do a mural on. And he spent his time working up all of the studies to do the mural and then executing it in fresco as did his peers, and they were intended not to be permanent. They were intended to be painted out. Some have said that the Mexicans loved this particular mural and wanted to keep it, but it ended up not being kept.
0: It doesn't exist anymore. Is that style, the Mexican muralist style, is that something he uses in his other work?
3: I mean, Like any artist, those styles become part of your playbook, things that you can do depending on what you're trying to communicate in a painting. One of the fascinating things in the exhibition is that all of his studies for the hands and the feet in the mural are very realistically rendered, very carefully drawn. But when you then look at those same hands and feet in the mural, they're distorted, they're expressive, they're oversized, they're not at all realistic. And so he chose a style from the mural tradition that would evoke the emotion that he was trying to express instead of trying to just stick to being a a realist, which didn't work for the subject he was painting.
0: So the mural itself is gone, but the preparatory studies remain. How did you decide to turn these sketches into an exhibition?
3: We've had the work by John Wilson since the first ones I think we acquired in 2001. We acquired a few more just before the exhibition. But mostly they've stayed in the print room where they're used by classes for study. About a year and a half ago... The curator and the assistant director at Yale University Art Gallery, which is a huge art museum at Yale University, uh, reached out to us because they had acquired another one of the studies for the mural and had several other works by John Wilson and were in contact with his widow and were doing um, an oral history with her about John's life. So they were engaged with that and they thought, what if we could bring together everything that still exists about mural? And we jumped on it because it was a way to get this really important work out and seen in a much more complete way than we would be able to do on our own.
0: So just hearing the word lynching is enough to send shivers down many people's spines. How did you deal with that when thinking about this exhibition?
3: That's a really great question. One of the things that curators have to wrestle with is the fact that our audiences are not monolithic. We have many different audiences. And sometimes we forget that at our peril, and I think when we first decided to take the reckoning with the incident, we were seeing it through the lens of, wouldn't this be a great educational experience for students at Grinnell who don't know about the history of lynching, whether they're 18 to 22-year-old American students or international students? It tends not to be at the forefront of what people understand about the history of race in this country. What we completely ignored, to our peril, but we did catch it, uh, is that our African-American faculty, staff, and students know this history intimately, and for them, it's very painful. And to put it up there as an educational experience ignores what they're going to have to reckon with, with having this on the wall, which is that they perhaps knew somebody, or don't know who an ancestor was, but could very well have had an ancestor who was lynched, or lived in communities where this terror was ever present, or had to shop at a store where the man who was selling you your shoes was one of the guys who was out lynching somebody the day before. That we hadn't really stopped to think about. So late last spring semester, there was a series of faculty workshops about race and and dealing with race. And Kay brought it up at this workshop, and suddenly people's alarm bells started to go off because of that word lynching. And they thought, oh my God, what is this a mural of? And what's it going to look like? And how traumatic will it be to see it? And we took that moment to say, okay, we need to slow down, start talking to people. We need to think about this, whether it's even a good idea to do it. And we thought, okay, well, let's let everybody have a chance to percolate on this. We showed them the images. We showed them the scale of the images, which is not huge. So it's not a mural in your face. It's a relatively small study and then the drawings. And Tilly in particular, Tilly Woodward, started to really carefully work through this with a number of different stakeholders, uh, making sure they had personal time to reckon with what this project was going to be. And slowly people began to see that it wasn't as dangerous, as they might have thought, but it was definitely provoking. And it was provoking in perhaps what could be good ways. Um, As soon as the the fall semester started, we had one of our interns, Marco Saffold, and we introduced him to the upcoming exhibition and asked if he would like to be engaged with it. And he jumped on it with alacrity and said, let me take this to my colleagues at the CBS,
0: That's the Concerned Black Students, an organization on campus.
3: And they got very engaged and said, yes, we want to have a say in how this is presented. We asked if they would like to plan the opening, and they did. And they also came up with some other programming. And by engaging them early on and letting them have their own voice in this, it's been a very positive experience. And I hope that the exhibition will be
0: as well. So it sounds like a process of reckoning with the work before it even came into fruition. A lot of thought went into it, which people can't necessarily see when they come through the exhibition, but it's important to keep in mind. But like so many of the Faulkner Gallery exhibitions, there's so much more than just what's in the gallery. The exhibit itself is quite simple and small, yet it lends itself to so much interpretation and involves so many different disciplines and ideas and histories. Starting with the opening reception, which was led by students, there have been a flurry of events in the gallery this semester which touch on different elements of the exhibit from a wide variety of angles. Tilly Woodward, the curator of academic and community outreach at the gallery, helped organize all of this activity. I asked her why she felt it was important to get all of these different voices involved in the exhibition.
1: I think you have to fold in all voices, and you have to think carefully through um, who your audiences are and what your goals are for every exhibition I'm really appreciative to all the faculty, staff, and students who um, had very thoughtful and productive conversations about what the works meant, how they could be seen, how they could be interpreted, and helping us find our way with the development of audience and the development of programming. Programming is always important for any exhibition that we bring in. It leverages a way that um, people can connect and Um, have a deeper, richer experience with the exhibitions, it's always an important part. But I feel like especially for this exhibition, which talks about violence, race, history, unspeakable sorrow, and the way that you can think forward to the impact of trauma over generations, that there's a particular sensitivity to to this exhibition um, and the sorrow and the horror that it represents. And so I began to toy with the idea of bringing Story Center to do a digital workshop. And so Joe Lambert, who is the founder of Story Center, agreed to come. And in November, we did a three-day workshop with ten student staff and faculty, um, where I asked them to really dig deep and think about how they connected personally with the exhibition.
0: Participants were given the artwork to look with and latch onto a particular theme or element from the work to tell their own story. Liz Quetham, senior lecturer in biology, was one of the participants in the workshop.
3: I grew up in an interracial family, although nobody described it that way at the time, because my sister and I were both adopted. And at first, I thought that the differences between us were just because we were different people. But as You know, especially um, after I went to college, I began to realize how much of our existence was probably dictated by how people saw us in terms of our race.
0: Chris Hunter, professor of sociology, was also involved in the workshop.
2: The main illustration of the mural as a whole, the one that depicts the lynching, I I frankly found very difficult to look at. And um, so I... I looked at part of it, um, a part that depicts what appears to be a mother, a child, and a a father kind of hiding inside a building from the KKK.
0: That initial reaction of repulsion is common. We want to look away from these painful images. Yet, the works are there for people to look at.
2: I think unlike the imagery we get in the news, which often historically and now depicts uh, horrendous events, and and does it does it powerfully, you know, photography is a very powerful medium, but but in some ways the artistic representation, for me at least, and I'm not speaking as an art historian or critic here, but it can kind of distill part of the reality of the imagery, the reality of the event. I find it really interesting to have seen the overall representation of the mural in the context of our exhibit, where most of the pictures there are the studies. The combination, I think, is, is particularly powerful in a way that a single image by itself wouldn't be. It, for me, at least, it helped me to, to f- focus on, as I say, the things that were less troublesome and, and, and personally upsetting about it. But I think having to face the fact of that kind of behavior or those kinds of horrors through the, the art is, um, is important.
0: Each participant latched onto something different and told their own personal story, connecting deeply to the exhibit, which is really what we hope to do with any art exhibit. There's a link to the videos from the Story Center workshop on the podcast website, and they're also part of the gallery on loop in the resource area for people to view.
1: I feel like they will give other guests and visitors to the gallery multiple points of view about how you could connect with John Wilson's pieces and how you could think about lynching in the United States and how you could think about um, the way that art helps us process and interpret the things that are most difficult in our lives and in our history as, as a country. I think there's real value in that.
0: The opening reception featured students reciting poems by County Cullen, Langston Hughes, and other poets, as well as a song and movement exercise. Farah Omer, a senior from Somaliland, was one of those students. She read a Lucille Clifton poem during the opening reception, and I talked to her a little about how she connected to the exhibition.
4: Just being in the exhibition as a black person who's not an American, of a very different connection and relationship to history of lynching and racial violence in the United States, in that I am racialized and, and raised as a black person, but I don't have the history that black people do in the United States. So for me, it was coming to the United States, it was the first time that I learned that, you know, that I was black, but also that there is this history that was not just a very distant thing I learned in middle school history that was like once slavery in a very faraway place, and it may have involved people who look like, you're like you know, I never really and it's silly to say, but i never really made the connection until I came to the United States. And it takes a lot of learning and a lot of work um, for me to kind of understand what what is this history that isn't mine, but I am somehow, that's also mine and I'm kind of part of, because I live here now. So being at the exhibition and reading this poem, it made me realize that I still had a lot to figure out, but somehow... I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do it from, like, very removed subject position that I had before.
0: Farah also visited the exhibition with her anthropology class, studying it as a site of collective memory.
4: And we always talk about that class, like, what is memory for certain people? It can be history for others, and race in the United States, like, for me, it functioned as history. But the more I live here, the lines kind of get blurred, and...
0: These personal questions are on the minds of many who walk through the gallery and view this exhibition. For some people, that kind of reflection happens every day, but this exhibition forces the issue. You can't avoid it. As with anything, our experiences impact how we see and interpret the exhibit and what we take away. We often talk about how art makes us think and feel, but what about how it makes us move? Two students with backgrounds in dance and movement brought their experience to this exhibit and during the opening reception, encouraged others to do the same. After the students read their poems, Naomi Warub, class of 2019, and Obuchi Adikama, class of 2021, invited the audience to look around the gallery and think about the movements that the work inspired in them. I talked to Obuchi and Naomi about how they structured the exercise.
5: How we did that through dance was ask people to look at the art find a detail, and then in some way put it into your body. And we encourage that they do it abstractly, so you could, um, rather than seeing a person and then taking on the position that that person is in, in the the work, Mm -hmm. um, you could look at a line, you could look at color, you could look at um, any number of things and find a way that um, those qualities can be a part of a movement. And then we wanted to find a way so that people could then come back together and share it with the group. And we wanted um, to find a way that after kind of sitting with the art, also all the poems that had been shared, um, we wanted to find a way to also sit with each other. And so um, it was a process of looking at the art, finding a movement, then coming back together as a group asking individuals to share their gesture and then slowly building those gestures together to develop a phrase. And then Eden uh, sang Strange Fruit, and we did our movement to that to that song.
0: I think with a work like this, sometimes we're left speechless or our words don't feel adequate. What kind of emotions and movements did it elicit in you and in other people?
6: I think it was sombering when I first saw it. The gallery is a gallery of lynching studies, so you always know it's going to be a heavy work. But I think there's something about the details in each of the different images that like really kind of grounds you. And I didn't really say much when I first saw them.
5: In the movements that um, people offered when we were putting together the phrase at the end, I felt like there was a lot of... Um tension in the body between moving downwards and then also like being uplifted there was a, a a lot of images of knots ropes roots um and so i think the same sort of like twisting tension that we feel in those was what was felt in in the movement
0: whether it inspires movement thoughts or feelings this exhibition really forces you to confront the painful history of racial violence in this country tilly woodward agrees
1: And I think that that speaks to the power power and the importance of art um, because one thing that happens in a work of art is that um, it's not a linear process. It's a process of gestalt. So there are a lot of things that are happening at once simultaneously. And so the nuance that it um, can take on in terms of the way that it addresses the subject matter, I think, is... Powerful. It speaks to our hearts and our minds and our bodies all at once. Um, and I feel like um, especially this exhibition offers a really complex mirror to connect viewers' knowledge and emotions with the, the artist's knowledge and emotions. There's this sense of discovery and connection because there's the artist who is reflecting on this history um, and how it has impacted himself personally over time and then thinking societally his, you know, his work as a muralist, they were definitely thinking about the social impact of art and then how that reaches forward to future generations who may not have lived through the same thing that John Wilson has lived through, um, but it gives them an opportunity to connect, reflect, um, and make meaning of. So um, even though there will be people who come to look at the exhibition who don't have the same depth of understanding, the artwork opens a doorway where they can begin to understand and they can begin to have that empathy that they might not have had otherwise.
0: Lest we forget, the history of racism isn't restricted to the South, or some far-off time many years ago. It is here, too, right smack dab in the middle of Grinnell. Some photos recently surfaced from past yearbooks here at Grinnell, showing students in blackface and other racist gestures. We like to tout our abolitionist and social justice history, and rightfully so, but we too have our own reckoning to do here at Grinnell with that history. And the exhibit on display at the gallery right now is one step towards doing just that. Reckoning with the incident, John Wilson's studies for a lynching mural will remain on display until April 6th at Grinnell's Faulkner Gallery. If you want to see some images from the exhibition, as well as the digital stories made by students, faculty, and staff, and some pictures from the events, check them out on the podcast website. Also on display at the gallery is Dread and Delight, Fairy Tales in an Anxious World. It's a pivot from the other exhibition, but not as much as you might think. Fairy tales nowadays have a very positive veneer to them. Disney has made these stories into happy tales of princesses and princes. Beneath that shiny veneer, though, are a lot of troubling themes. Fairy tales, at least the popular ones in the American canon, were originally meant for adults, and deal with themes of violence, abandonment, and abuse, among other things. Emily Stamey, a 2001 Grinnell grad, worked in the Faulkner Gallery as a student and has returned again as the curator for this exhibit. She works as the curator of exhibitions at the Weatherspoon Art Museum at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Stamey's exhibit has paintings, sculptures, videos, and all sorts of fascinating art, and it can be a lot to take in, but it's organized around seven fairy tales, most of which you're probably familiar with. We walked around the exhibit together and discussed how she came up with the idea for the exhibition.
7: So there's a moment maybe five or six years ago where I walked into this movie theater and there were two posters up side by side for upcoming movies and they were both retellings of Snow White. Um, One was that sort of dark and creepy Snow White and the Huntsman and the other was the sparkly, it was a Disney something, Mirror Mirror I think was the title of it. And I just thought, why? Why on earth are there two movies about Snow White at the same time? Who on earth wants to go watch these? Because <laughs> I had absolutely no interest. But they were these giant posters side by side. And it just kind of lodged in the back of my head. And over the course of the next year, I just realized we were bombarded with fairy tale material. You know, it was on TV and the TV shows, Once Upon a Time and Grimm. It was in all these movie remakes. It was in young, young adult literature. I mean, it was just kind of everywhere. And then, of course, because I hang out in art museums and galleries, I started noticing, oh yeah, artists are doing this too. And at that point I had to second guess myself and say, okay, there's something to this. Why? You know, Uh, what what is this and why is this so interesting to everybody? And I will try and wrap my head around this by looking at the art and try to make some sense of it.
0: And this exhibit brings together the work of 19 different artists. When you started kind of building this exhibition and thinking about what to include, were you surprised at how many artists were, were working and dealing with these themes of fairy tales?
7: I was. It was a little bit like I discovered this theme within contemporary art that I had never been taught, mm. um, and we don't write about it in, in great amount. Um, there's a whole body of fairy tale studies, um, and interestingly, that sort of discipline doesn't really look at the fine art either. They'll look at film, they'll look at literature, they'll look at lots of other different realms where fairy tales show up, but no one was really writing about it in a museum or a fine art gallery context. Mm. Um, and the truth is, the show could include. 40 or 50 Mm. artists. Um, So ultimately I had to rein it in somehow. um, And what I decided to do was to look at specific stories. So to anchor it with the fairy tales themselves. um, And and that then set parameters and and narrowed what I could bring into it. Guiding
0: principle of sorts. So which stories did you end up including in, in this exhibit? I know most of them are familiar to most people, but there's also a few that are maybe a little more niche.
7: Exactly. so so the other through line is I decided I would focus on stories by the Brothers Grimm. And of course, some of these stories have also been told you know and, and put into anthologies by other fairy tale authors. But in the US, the Grimms is sort of the tradition that we know mm-hmm. the best. So I decided that was a good grounding point. Um, There are seven stories, and like you said, um, five of them are quite well-known. I think people will recognize them quickly. And then two are not. And that was really deliberate, in part because the artist had tackled those two other stories, and I found that really interesting. But also just this reminder to us that fairy tales are bigger than what we take away from Disney in Mm -hmm. essence you know there's there's more than just those five stories that we know really well five or six there's this huge you know literature that is fairy tales Mm -hmm. so the stories in here some of the better known ones are Little Red Riding Hood, Hansel and Gretel, Rapunzel and then sort of two of the very best known are Snow White and Cinderella. Mm And then the ones that are lesser known, there is one called Fitcher's Bird. It's sometimes better known by the French title, which is Bluebeard. Um, so sometimes that rings a bell for people. Um, and then one that is called All Fur. In French, that one is Donkey Skin. Um, and it is one of, that is one I have found people are the least familiar right. with. And it's in the same tale type as Cinderella, so it is related to Cinderella, yep. but a really unusual a little, little, twist on it. little twist on that one, yeah.
0: What is it about these stories that lend themselves to, to revisiting them with a contemporary lens?
7: So I think what artists have found so interesting in them is the fact that they wrestle with really harsh realities. I mean the thing is fairy tales were never meant to be kids literature to begin with. They were written by adults for adults. They deal with war. They deal with famine. They deal with completely dysfunctional families. Mm -hmm. They deal with these horrible power imbalances. And the characters in them are usually these people on the margins. So they're people that don't have a lot of power. So the protagonists are kids who, you know, have sort of no means about them in these stories. Or they're women who, especially at the time that the stories were written, were definitely characters in positions of no power, and they are almost always poor, and there is something about looking at those people in the margins that really resonates with how we're thinking through lots of different social issues right now. And so I think that's part of the appeal to artists. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also magical. I mean, like there is there is some of the most vivid imagery in fairy tales that you will find anywhere, um, and that makes for great art too.
0: Yeah, I think. A lot of people nowadays, when you think of fairy tales, you're thinking of the Disney versions and the kind of softened edges that we've put on these stories. And when I was revisiting uh, some of these tales and looking at the the works here, I was kind of surprised that I I didn't even know about like the, the darker side to right. some of these stories. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, yeah, <laughs> we I mean, we read these to our children. <laughs> they're
7: creepy and scary and weird. And, and Disney gave us very clean, very happy fairy tales Mm -hmm. and and you can enjoy them and that's absolutely fine I mean like but the thing is is that fairy tales originally were messy they were really really messy stories and they didn't always have perfectly clear endings and really terrible things happened
0: in them Uh
7: um so the the artists are latching onto that for certain the
0: artists are definitely um breathing some of the the old life into some of these stories and putting a a different edge on them yeah I'd say can you give me an example of the kind of traditional, like story, um, that is being told, and then how one of the artists might be reimagining it or putting their own story Put into it? Own spin
7: on it. We can talk about the carriage, which okay. is always one of people's. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh,
0: you know you walk in here and the carriage is kind of
7: right. So we are standing in front of this sculpture that is by the artist Tim Horn and it's titled Mother Lode and it is a nearly life-size Baroque carriage um, and it is completely covered in crystallized rock candy which is then covered in a shellac. It sparkles and it's sort of pumpkin orange colored and it has all these twists and curls and ornateness and, and you really could sort of sit a smallish-sized human inside of it, uh-huh. I mean, it, it has a presence in the room. So I think it's one of the ones that people most quickly associate with the story, I mean, you walk in, you look at it, and you say, oh my goodness, Cinderella's carriage, You're right, yeah. um, and in part because the carriage is such a key element of the story, in part because the version of the story we know from Perot and then Disney, you know, it's a pumpkin that gets turned into the carriage and this sculpture here is such a beautiful bright orange color. But the artist started the project as a commission for a museum in San Francisco called the de Young Museum and he had been asked to respond to something in their collection. And their collection had been founded by a woman named Alma Spreckels who had this sort of real-life Cinderella story. Hmm. So she had been born to a very poor family. She was a laundress and then she married into a sugar fortune. So she married into tremendous wealth that was all made from sugar plantations Uh in Hawaii. And and so she sort of skyrocketed to, you know, the upper echelons of San Francisco society at the turn of the century and amassed art and through these, you know, big parties and tried to define herself as a philanthropist. But she was always an outsider. Mm. I mean, she had that rags to riches, I mean, a literal rags to riches yeah. tale, but it wasn't a happily ever after in mm-hmm. any sense and so tim was interested in that and so he you know built this sculpture that's inspired some by the furniture that was in her collection that she had collected Um so directly related to things that she owned and then playing off of that cinderella story and then of course covering it in the crystallized candy and that yeah. homage to her sugar her sugar link to wealth um, and then titles at mother load which is sort of this fraught and weighted yeah term Mm -hmm. um, to remind us that it's not all necessarily happily ever after. Yeah.
0: As we walk around here and kind of look at this exhibit, what strikes me is the diversity of different media and ideas portrayed here. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot going on with this exhibit. Um, And a lot of the pieces themselves are very involved, You know, whether it's the Rapunzel braids or the, I don't know what this one is called, but the entrails coming out of Mm -hmm. the pipe here. the artists themselves also come from a variety of backgrounds. So how do you kind of, how do you take it all in? Like there's, there's just so much here.
7: There is, I mean, it's a really, really dense show. But again, the, the way you make your way through it or the way I made my way through it and have laid it out for people is by the stories themselves. Mm-hmm. So as you walk through the gallery, all the pieces pertaining to Rapunzel are grouped together, Cinderella is grouped together, Red Riding Hood is grouped together, so that you can think about that story and then look at the different ways you know, that two or three or four artists have unpacked it or retold it or visualized or reimagined it. Mm-hmm. This is a piece by the artist Gil Yefman, um, who is an Israeli artist who um, whose work I know from him showing in New York quite a lot. Um, the piece is called Longing. Um, and what we're looking at is up at the top of the wall, sort of jetting out is this plastic sewer pipe. And then spilling from it are all of these knit forms that maybe kind of give us an allusion to Rapunzel's braid spilling out of the tower. But in this instance, they're not dangling from a tower, they're spilling out of this pipe. And then we look more closely and the so sort of first element coming out of the pipe is hair. It kind of looks like coils of hair falling down. But then you notice all these other parts and there are lungs and hearts and hands and breasts and a penis and eyes. There are all these different body parts and and pointedly there are both male and female body parts. Um, so the artist has transitioned gender-wise. So at the moment of making this, had gone from male to female, has since gone back to male. But is thinking through, you know, what do you do with these fairy tales that paint gender in such really, really stark divisions? Mm. And how do you relate or what do you do if you're trying to find yourself in these stories yeah. and you are not the prince or the princess or you maybe are one and then the other. Mm-hmm. And so what is a more, you know, fluid way to think about it. And so this is his more fluid Rapunzel and and of course and, you know, sort of literally fluid in that it is mimicking water coming out of a of a pipe.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot going on there. There um, is. Yeah. And then can you describe what is hanging over us as we walk through this? Right. So this.
7: stretching up through and along the ceiling alongside it is this mammoth gold braid with all of these red ribbons tied to it. The braid is 1,600 feet long. (laughs) Um, So the way it's installed here, which I love, which is so fabulous, because the Faulkner has such great architecture. And so it sort of dips up in towards the skylights and through the rafters, Uh and it loops, and it spills, and it falls all over the place. This is a piece by the artist M.K. Guth, who's based out of Portland. And it's called Ties of Protection and Safekeeping. And so she was interested in thinking about Rapunzel from the perspective of the witch. So remember that the story of Rapunzel is that this woman, you know, was pregnant and she was craving this Rapunzel plant in the neighbor's yard and sent her husband to steal it. The neighbor happened to be a witch (laughs) who said, you've stolen my lettuce, therefore you must give me your baby. She takes the baby, names her Rapunzel, and when the baby is about 12 years old or whatever, a young girl or young woman, um, locks her away in a tower so that nobody will get to her, Mm -hmm. so the witch can keep her for herself. And we can think of that as a really terrible thing to do to a child, Um, but you can also think of it as maybe the impulse of many parents to lock their children away Mm -hmm. and not have the terrible world get to them. Yeah. So M.K. Guth went across the country asking people, what to you is worth protecting or safekeeping? Mm. And she invited people to write their answers on these strips of red um, flannel. And then she progressively kept braiding this braid of hair it is synthetic hair, it's not real hair. Um, and tying these ribbons into it. So what you wind up with is this beautiful sculptural form, but tied into it are thousands upon thousands of different individuals' responses to what they would protect or keep safe. And they range. You know, Some are my grandmother's teacups, mm-hmm or, you know, love letters that someone gave me or something very sentimental. Other ones are things like liberty or microdiversity or the environment, you know, things like this. And then other ones are, you know, a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, um, my right to party. Um, I think my bong is on one of these. <laughs> I mean, so, so they, they run the full gamut uh-huh. um, of how people responded to them.
0: That's funny. Yeah. Um, so what do you want viewers to kind of leave this exhibition thinking about?
7: I think first off I would want them to leave with what I left the project with, which is a realization that fairy tales are not fluff, um, that they're so much richer and complex and interesting than I ever really gave them credit for. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, I hope everyone takes something sort of personal away from it. I mean, I think there's so many different ways to approach the artworks in here and you, you bring your own stories to the stories and then you take something new away from them hopefully people are encountering some new artists and artworks that they've never seen before too or taking artists who are maybe a little more familiar to them but haven't been framed in this context before because like i said we don't really study fairy tales as a particular theme Uh um, within contemporary art in a really focused way and so it's interesting to put artists in that context
0: yeah Well, thank you, Emily, for uh, taking the time to talk about this incredible exhibition and putting it together.
7: Absolutely. Thanks for coming to see it.
0: Emily Stamey is the director of the Weatherspoon Art Museum at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. She worked in the Faulkner Gallery as a student right when it first opened. Hopefully our conversation offered a glimpse into the exhibition, but you really should see it for yourself if you can. It's on display until April 27th, so check it out while you still can. The Faulkner Gallery is such an incredible space on campus, and students, if you haven't been over to check out the recent exhibitions, hopefully this inspires you to get off your bums and head over there. Okay, I'll step off my soapbox. Actually, no, I won't, because this whole podcast is my soapbox. So get over to Faulkner Gallery right now. My mom even came down, all the way from Wisconsin, just because she wanted to see the exhibitions. Okay, maybe she also wanted to see her favorite son. Sorry, Zach, but we know it's true. Okay, now I'm done. Students are on spring break right now, doing all sorts of crazy and exciting things while I whittle away the hours here in Grinnell, chasing squirrels with my dog. I'm not salty, though. Really, we all deserve a break after what was a grueling winter. To help students get through the doldrums of winter and make it to spring without catching burling fever or noise flu... A group of generous alumni came to the rescue, sending care packages for each and every Grinnell student on campus, 1,380 in all. The packages, sent from Grinnell alums all over the world, have their origins in the alumni Facebook group, Everyday Class Notes. The initial idea to send the care packages came about in 2014, as several alums reminisced about their old mailboxes in Carnegie Hall how they would receive notes from prior mailbox owners and send something new to the new mailbox owner after they graduated. So some alums got the idea to send packages to current students, and the care package project is now in its sixth year. Alumni from around the world have spent the past year shopping, crafting, and gathering materials to create these care packages, most of which come with a personal note of encouragement, friendly advice, or words of wisdom to students. The care packages require planning and coordination, and it's truly a group effort. Alums help out in various ways, buying the items, assembling the packages, paying for shipping, or helping to distribute them in Grinnell. Some even drive all the way to Grinnell, like Scott and Laura Shepard, both from the class of 1982, who, for the third year in a row, have made the 500-mile trip from Tulsa, Oklahoma to help hand out packages, including 80 of their own that they packed into the back of their SUV. Monique Shore, from the class of 1990, lived in town, so the trek is a little easier for her.
3: Since I'm local, it makes it
6: easy to be able to participate. I don't have to pay shipping, which is nice. <laughs> it's really easy to come over and volunteer. Yeah. And I just love connecting yeah. with the students. Uh-huh. So I, I work with students
3: so um, I at the library. It's fun to hear their side of it and how much joy it brings. Stop, so like, it's just a really awesome are project. Are really
0: cool. Students look through the plethora of packages to find the perfect one that fits their wants and needs. I asked Monique if looking through the packages was kosher. We,
1: well, it is allowed. It is allowed. There's yeah. definitely students that want to know what they're getting. And then there's others that like if it's just a plain brown box, they're go
3: they're going for it. So because the decision can be overwhelming. So
0: I agree. There's a lot. <laughs> there's so much that, yeah, you don't like you only get one decision decision and there's like so many boxes and there's you want so to many make, banks, yeah. you want to make sure you're making the right one, man. Yeah, the that's pressure. fair. You
1: got to make your choice count. <laughs>
0: Dev Nalwa is one of those students who likes to know exactly what he's getting with his care package. With hundreds of packages to choose from, choosing just one can be overwhelming. Some of the packages hint at the contents within with labels like vegetarian, gluten-free, nut-free, and dairy-free. While others have an obvious theme like tea lovers, chocolate lovers, home-cooked meals, Girl Scout cookies, or Dr. Seuss. And still, others are simple brown boxes offering no clues to the treasures within. So, with all these choices, how do you decide which package to take? For Jeremy Barnes, it was an easy choice. I'm looking at this Star Wars bag, and I'm like, you know, I'm feeling that. So, like, hopefully. Are you a Star Wars guy? Oh yeah, of course, of course, uh, nerd dude, I'm a total nerd. <laughs> okay. Geeky. For some, the decision comes down to a matter of pure caloric content as students need food to sustain them through what can be a grueling stretch of the semester.
6: There were like 50 granola bars, not really, but like there was a lot, um, there were a lot of cliff bars, there were a lot of like high energy um, fuels.
0: For Inez Dufresne, she's a big believer in the benefits of chocolate.
6: Well, I saw the dark chocolate, so I had to go for it.
0: Fair enough. 72%, you know. Tyler Williams also takes a practical approach to finding the right package.
4: A lot of them have toys, but I was like, what well, am I going to do with those toys? I just needed the snacks, so you this one had the most, yes.
0: There are a lot of snacks in there. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily healthy, but are they I'm not get a healthy person.
4: Of course you are going to get me through. I love Skittles, uh, you know, sugars, carbohydrates, things that I need to live.
0: Tyler's utilitarian approach aside, some students are looking for something fun just to get them through the dreary winter. Many are far from home or going through a rough patch, and these care packages come at the right time and really do make a difference. Whether they're looking for snacks, toys, or just randomly choosing, students love the connections they feel with the alumni who send the packages. Mira Berkson reflected on three years of receiving care packages.
6: First year I got one from someone I think in Hong Kong. That was crazy. I got some cool toys. Last year I got some socks with toucans on them. Yeah, it's a happy time.
0: Mira was concerned that I didn't receive a package myself.
6: Did you get a care package?
0: Back in the day, yes. I always got a care package. But you can't now? Yes. Well, I'm not a student. I would...
6: Yeah, but you like fake, or a fake student.
0: Yeah, I am a fake student. You're right. <laughs> so I can get a fake package.
6: Yeah, you could, I mean, I think you can get a real package. You lurk.
0: Mira's allergic to nuts and kindly offered to share them with me.
6: Do you want uh, these? I'm going to give you my snacks because Wait, I'm can you say
0: that again? Do I want what?
6: Uh, these walnuts and no, no, no. almonds. What,
0: you, do these? I want these? These. These what? Uh,
6: these, these nuts.
0: <laughs> the giving spirit of the care packages is truly infectious. Picking the right package can be a tall order, but in the end, it's not so much about what's in the package as the message it sends. Sometimes, quite literally, it's the note in the package that resonates with students. It's
6: from, um... Hope Roccos Morrison, uh, class of 99 from Montana. Oh my god, she played Gamelan. Uh, my first year tutorial was encountering Indonesia. So we did that once. Oh, and a picture of her with her bicycle. I'm assuming her, apologies. Uh, from 1999.
0: Grinnellians. Wow, they had pictures back then. They had pictures and back then. And bicycles. This. Alums and students alike enjoy interacting through these care packages. Many packages have letters, like this one, and students often follow up with the alums to thank them. Charles Carr, a senior, fired off an email to his alum almost immediately after opening his package.
2: They both happened to
1: be from L.A., the people who sent it, which was a nice coincidence, and it had some homemade
3: treats like fudge, bark, and toffee. This is a nice little pick-me-up, especially because of the fact that they just happened to be where I'm from, and one of them was a lawyer, which is what I want to do. So it's a nice coincidence, and it's just one of the perks of being at Grinnell.
0: The highlight of Andrea Baumgartel's package was not the food, but a five-page letter from one of the alums. As for Dev, he eventually made up his mind and chose a package. The toy sport package, please. So you're gonna, you're gonna sh- presumably share this love with others. hundred percent. You have to play some games. I gotta go play. I'm gonna go play some bowling right in the grill right now. <laughs> you're an alum and want to get involved in the Care Package Project, you can join the Facebook group. A quick shout-out to two Grenellians who have started a new podcast of their own. Mumta Pokhrel, class of 2007, and Raji Pokhrel, class of 2008, are both from Nepal and work as therapists. The podcasts talk about mental health issues, and the first two episodes deal with exam anxiety and culture shock. The podcasts are in English and Nepali. You can find links to the podcast on our website. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Next time, we're going to talk to Ella Williams, who graduated last semester and set off touring around the world under her musical name of Squirrel Flower. One of her songs, Conditions, was featured on NPR's All Songs Considered. We'll talk about her musical influences and how her time at Grinnell influenced her music. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.